Friends, as we settle now into uh, listening to God's word, Martha is going to come and read from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. Martha? Then Jesus began to teach them that the human one must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We celebrate the written word of scripture. Thanks be to God. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Thanks be to God. It's so good to be here with you this morning. This church feels like a church home to me. I'm always excited to join you in worship. I want to warn you, uh, one of my preaching mentors told me once, uh, don't let your exegesis show. So by that he meant, do your research and let it inform your sermon, but don't let your sermon sound like a research paper. Uh, today, throwing that advice out the window, because as I was reading in preparation for this sermon, I was reading this book, it's called Treasures Old and New, Images in the Lectionary. And I had so much fun reading it. I was sure that in my sermon today, I needed to share it with you. So this sermon is a lot of history. Uh, it is a little bit of singing and a little bit of reflection, all on the images of the cross and the blood. So the first thing I want to do is plant a little earworm. I'll probably have to apologize for this later, but an earworm, sing along if you'd like. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born in his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. I'll tell you this song and others like it are not very palatable to my white progressive theology. But it is these songs that have been playing on repeat for me since the start of the pandemic. Another one I've been singing a lot. He lives, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. 
is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. So on the one hand, I don't love the transactional nature of these hymns. Our salvation purchased by God, our sin nailed to the cross, the blood imagery explicit in blessed assurance and implied in it as well, gives me pause. But on the other hand, in this time of crisis, these tunes resonate in my soul. I find in them a sense of comfort and assurance that God is with us. We don't talk a lot about blood and the cross in white mainline Protestant churches. And I've had a whole year of pandemic isolation to think about why and to wonder if we've maybe thrown the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to these images. Is there a blessing for us in the blood and the cross? We'll start our search for blessing with a bit of history. And for now, I'm going to stick with the history of this image of the cross, the blessing of the cross, knowing that the blood and the cross often go together, hoping that learning about one will give us some insight into the other. So the cross doesn't really show up in the Hebrew Bible per se, but the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the Tav, in its ancient form, it looks a lot like a cross. There's this gruesome story in the book of Ezekiel in which God commands the slaughter of the entire city of Jerusalem. But God chooses to spare some. And he says, God says to the messenger, go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done. The mark on the forehead was the Tav, the Hebrew letter shaped like a cross. Similar to the blood marking the doorposts at Passover, this cross was a sign of life, of salvation from death, a symbol of victory, not a symbol of suffering. The command in today's scripture to take up your cross, some scholars think that it may refer to this inscription of the Tav, a sign of the end time, a protective mark. One scholar says this command to take up the cross is a sign of strength on our forehead, not of a punishment born on our back. What we pick up and carry is our baptism, not a mode of death, but a way of life. To take up our cross is to take up a way of life, the way of Jesus, to proclaim and act out God's kingdom here on earth, to identify and care for the ones on the margins, to live for self and others. This is the way of Jesus, and it so threatened the powers that be that Jesus lost his life. So in the Greco-Roman world, this is the context in which Jesus lived. Crucifixion was an instrument of torture. It was execution for the lowest of the criminals. It was shameful to be crucified on a cross. Christians in the early centuries, in the time of Jesus, would not have marked anyone with the sign of the cross, with the sign of the cross. The earliest depictions of the cross we have 
they actually disguise the cross. Christ standing in this Iran's position in front of the cross or the cross entwined with vines into a tree of life. So already we have two dramatically different interpretations of this image of the cross. It is both a sign of life and salvation and an instrument of death. It is also a sign that ironically demonstrates the limits of the Roman Empire. These people in power, they did their worst in crucifying Jesus, but God raises from death to thwart the empire's efforts and to reveal the limits of its power. But in the fourth century, the empire, the people in charge, they're going to complicate things again. So this was a major moment in Christianity with the emperor, Emperor Constantine, making Christianity popular and powerful. Under his reign, Sunday rituals were infused with state money, with state pomp and circumstance, and he made the cross into an icon of power. He used it in the context of battle. He marked himself with the cross in the context of battle. He outlawed crucifixion and the cross became a logo for supremacy. Then Helena, his mother, sponsored an archeological dig and claimed that she found the true cross of Christ. That's when people started wearing the cross, venerating the cross, it became a relic over the centuries into the Middle Ages, the cross, the bare cross, gave way to crucifixes. Medieval spirituality popularized corpses marked by grotesque detail. But sometimes these horrific images of the cross had pastoral meaning. There's a crucifix hanging in a hospital chapel depicting Christ suffering from the same wounds being treated in that particular ward. Jumping forward, you know, in the 20th century, interest in, in different cultures and how they express their religion led to the cross being depicted in new ways. People around the world taking the image of the cross and making it their own, depicting Jesus with the same color skin as them, depicting suffering as they know suffering, adorning the cross with their own cultural elements. The cross has taken on layers and layers of meaning. In the Gospel of Mark, the cross is a sign of the hidden Messiah. In Matthew, the cross fulfills all Jewish expectations. In Luke, the cross is the locus of God's forgiveness. In John, the cross is the throne from which the Son of God reigns. The cross can symbolize Jesus' death as a sacrifice for our sin, Jesus executed because of his passion for social justice, a God who suffers with all who suffer. The cross depicts four corners of the world, four elements of creation, the four beasts of a zodiac scheme, the four solstices and equinoxes, the four seasons of the temperate zone, the four winds that bring rain. Ancient Egypt used it as a symbol for eternal life. Eastern religions see in the cruciform the balance of opposites in one whole. We set up spaces in cruciform in the cross shape to imagine perfection and order. New age religion uses the image of a cross tree, each fourth representing a season of the tree's cycle. The cross is a sign of life, of nature, of community. 
Gail Ramshaw says that the cross presents us with the ambiguity of the faith. Suffering is here, yet suffering is taken away by Christ. Death is before us, yet the spirit of life upholds us. Friends, the cross is a metaphor. It has a lot of meaning. The cross and the blood, these are central images of our faith and Christian identity. I think when we ignore them, when we leave them out of our worship, we whitewash Christianity because we deny the real suffering of Christ at the hands of the empire. When we use these images without care, we glorify suffering, we can perpetuate potentially harmful theologies. So where is the blessing? Where is the blessing of the cross and the blood? I think it's in three things. I think it's in the multivalent metaphor, the mystery that somehow Jesus's life, death and resurrection lead to our salvation. That somehow there is power in the blood of Jesus shed upon the cross, the life of one poured out for many. And when we try to explain it, when we try to reason our way through this truth, we can mess things up. But there is blessing for us in the struggle. And I think that's the second blessing. There is blessing in the struggle to understand and make meaning of the blood and the cross that we grow in our faith as we wrestle with it. But the most special blessing in the blood and the cross, it is the blessing of being known by God. God took on flesh, born of a woman. Blood ran through Jesus's veins just as it runs through ours. God lived, experienced joy and sorrow, anger, confusion, and suffering. God knows us because God became one of us. I love the blood hymns. They remind me of my grandmother at the piano, but also because they remind me of God incarnate. They remind me that even in the worst pain that I've ever felt, the pain of death, of losing a loved one, even there, God has been there. God is there. The image of Jesus on the cross, bleeding, dying, it's a public spectacle. And at the same time, there's an intimacy about it. There's a, another blood hymn I want to sing, a couple of verses. It's, Oh, Sacred Head Now Wounded, another good blood hymn. The first verses describe Christ on the cross, the crown of thorns. The third and fourth verse, they capture, I think, the intimacy of the image of the blood and the cross. In thy most bitter passion, my heart to share doth cry with thee for my salvation upon the cross to die. I'll keep my heart thus moved to stand thy cross beneath, to mourn thee well, beloved, 
yet thank thee for thy death. What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end? Oh, make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. Make me thine forever. Let me never outlive my love for thee. We are God's forever. In this season of Lent, we pick up our cross and we follow Jesus to Jerusalem. See the blood being shed, mourn the suffering, and then do something about it. Rise again, walk with the people of God, proclaim good news, transform and save our broken world. In this season of Lent, may you find a blessing in the cross and in the blood. Amen.